Kiora Wellington. You're listening to Wellington Access Radio 783 AM. This is B-Side Stories. I'm Laura, and I'm here with Martin Andrews. Hi, Martin. Good evening, everybody. I grow well and uh, keep it warm on this really wintry Wellington day. For the first half of the show, um, we're going to be talking about refugees in New Zealand. Mm. And uh, you might remember there, there was a photo of... There was a photo of uh, Ayal Kurdi, probably saying that wrong, but who was that? with the child. This this child, mm. this little boy who um, washed up, drowned on a, on a Turkish beach, mm. on a Turkish beach, um, which was all over the news media in uh, September last year, and it was a really moving image, and it got a lot of people talking and thinking about whether we're doing everything that we can to help people who are displaced by conflict around this the world. This is such an interesting topic, you know. Everybody has an opinion, it seems. And, you know, whether it be pro or con, they are so fiercely behind their belief system of why they why they should we should either accept more or say no to refugees. And, yeah. And it's really difficult, I think, to um, sort of convince either side to, to consider the other side's possible, you know, the, the, the beliefs that they have. So, yeah, really, really interested and, and uh, looking forward to this one. There's certainly a lot of strong perspectives. So, there are. Uh, look, well, at the, look at the We've got Brexit. someone. Yeah. Well, that's right. That's, that know, makes so it really topical. So much of that topical. was based on refugees. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Immigrants. Yeah. So someone who's thought a lot about this, we've got him in the studios, is, <laughs> is Murdoch Stevens. <laughs> Hi, Murdoch. Hi, and guys. He's he's the founder of a campaign called Doing Our Bit. Hi, Murdoch. Welcome to B-Side Stories. Hi, Laura. Lovely to be here. Thanks. Do you want my opinion now, or should I hold off for a little bit? Um, <laughs> That's coming out quick. Well, why don't you start off by telling us what Doing, doing Our Bit is all about? Right. So three years ago... Uh, I had an exhibition at Pataka also of some photos I found in the Middle East um, of Afghan refugees that had been in detention in Iran. And I worked with some people in the local Afghan community and a whole bunch of refugee organizations here to think about what these pictures meant. Um, And around the same time, I uh, read in the New Zealand Herald that New Zealand's uh, refugee quota hadn't increased in about 26 years at that time. And it was a fifth of what Australia was taking per capita. So I started a campaign three years ago called Doing Our Bit uh, with the explicit aim of increasing our refugee quota for the first time in basically three decades. Um, So it was 750, and we were thinking it should be doubled to 1,500, um, and that was based on the population growth in New Zealand that has happened since 1987 when it was set, and also the decrease in asylum seekers um, who can get to New Zealand because we've become a lot harsher on how people can actually get to the country if they're trying to claim asylum. So, yeah, it was kind of a statistics-based campaign for the first year and a half, and there wasn't that emotive cue of Ilan Kurdi and the movement of people into Europe. And then, actually, that was about two years into the campaign when he he washed up on the beach. Uh, so, yeah, it's been pretty pretty busy and a lot of other groups coming on board. But, yeah, we started that a while ago and um, thought that New Zealand could be doing more since we hadn't increased that quota in a long time. Yeah. So how, so um, it's been mostly a pressure campaign, is that right? How have you gone about trying to uh, sp- spread this view of increasing the quota being a really good mm-hmm. thing? Yeah, well, we started off, you know, as Martin was saying before, everyone does have an opinion on this. So we tried to frame it because, you know, Race and multiculturalism can be a really um, uh, 
strong issue for people, particularly we've seen it in Australia, the way it's gone down there. So the aim of it was to structure it around government policy and documents and statistics. So not really getting into the idea that we should take more people, we should just make up to the amount that we've done in the past. Mm. Um, so it's structured around about fi- inter- interacting with the public and politicians or publics in five different ways. One is social media, which has been pretty strong for us. Um, the other one is writing articles for mainstream media. Meeting politicians is another. Um, art exhibitions or other public gatherings. And then working with other NGOs who are in the field or associated fields and trying to get them to have public statements on it. So those are the five different areas that we've tried to sort of disseminate information and knowledge and facts and then to get people working along with us. And part of the knowledge and facts have been around international comparisons. Mm, So can you talk about how New Zealand compares to the rest of the world with uh, accepting refugees? Yeah, it's so difficult, right? Because there are these two ways that a refugee can get accepted. There's sort of more than two, but two main ways. One which we saw in Europe last year and with boats going to Australia is when a refugee is fleeing persecution um, on their own. So they just take take off from the country and then they turn up in your country, turn up in New Zealand or in Europe and say, listen, I am fleeing persecution. Here's some evidence of that. Please accept me into your country um, and protect me. And we've signed law, as have most um, first world countries, that we will accept anyone who can prove they've got a well-founded fear of persecution. The other way for countries that are a long way away, so countries like New Zealand and Australia and Canada, where it's very hard for a refugee just to turn up. Um, You know, there's no land border between New Zealand and, say, Eritrea or Syria. The other way is the quota. Um, And the quota is a great system whereby we go to refugee camps in places like Jordan or Thailand and say, listen, we are going to take 750 people a year. And I always feel like I'm getting far into too much depth on this. This is the other way. We go and we take them from these camps and bring them to New Zealand. So, oh man, what was the exact question? It was, um, how are we... How, how do we compare internationally? Right. So in terms of just the quota, um, there's only about uh, 10 countries that really use a quota system. Interesting. So in terms of asylum seekers... Um, we have no control over how many come here. We're about, just with asylum seekers and not with quota refugees, about 124th in the world in the number of applications per capita per year. So that's really low. And because that's so low, we also take people through a quota, like Australia, like the US, like Canada. And so if you add those together, um, gee, there's about six different measures. Um, one that's most popularly done puts us at, uh, I think the new data is going to have us 94th in the world at hosting refugees per capita. Mm. And hosting has a particular meaning. Um, That means people who the United Nations think are refugees. Um, The government likes to say that we rank seventh in the world, but that's just for the quota. So if you measure us just in terms of the quota, obviously Germany doesn't use a quota because they've taken 1.1 million people through that first system, the asylum system, where people just turn up. So there's a lot of difficulty around the stats um, and a lot of bad faith from the government um, Hmm. where they know that their statistics are misleading and use them anyway. Right. So the government has announced that they're going to increase that quota uh, from 750 to 1,000 in two years' time. Do you view that as sort of a win for doing our bit? Yeah, sort of a win. 
Um, you know, three years ago, we were like, we had a lot of expectation this year that they would double the quota. I mean, we had um, not just Amnesty International or Action Station coming on board, but we had huge organizations. We had World Vision, we had the Labour Party and the Greens come on board and United Future and all the government support parties. Um, the Anglican Church and the Catholic Church have both been very supportive. So there was a sense this year that they should double it, and that was justified. A lot of media on site as well. But if I look three years ago at what the government's uh, press release was on when they announced the quota before this, they were congratulating themselves on not cutting it. So to get a national government to do anything on refugees, um, this current government, when they've said so repeatedly that they wouldn't increase it, is something of a win, yeah. But... You know, there's still a long way to go. It, it, is it so? It sounds like we're in a bit of a unique position with the quota system. It, it, does that impose extra costs or have a different kind of requirements on New Zealand that other countries might not have to deal with? Not really. Like in some senses, it does. But if you look at a country like Germany or Sweden that gets most of their refugees as asylum seekers, um, they do the same programs that we do. Um, they don't have to fly them there. That's a benefit. Um, the government likes to cite the costs of airfares to fly a family over from the Middle East, so they prefer to take people from Asia Pacific. But no, there's not really. I mean, if so that comparison between a country like Germany and New Zealand, we would have roughly the same programs there. Um, and people do say New Zealand's got a good, um, strong program, and we can do that because we have quite small numbers. But then if you compare, say, New Zealand to countries that haven't signed the agreements um, that would give refugees protection. So compare New Zealand to Lebanon or to Turkey, where they have far more refugees, and they simply can't put them through a program like we've got. So in places like that, they don't give them citizenship. People just sort of stay in camps, and the government doesn't, or, or in urban environments, um, the government doesn't spend money in the same way. But also New Zealand's GDP per capita is much higher than a lot of those countries. Mm. Interesting. So the um, so uh, yeah the the services that are available for refugees have been uh, a, a great resource, but also uh, cited as a barrier because people say, oh, we we haven't got the resources to scale those up, or or there's a cost associated, or they say that um, they want to you know they want to take more people gradually so that. Mm we can do it right, you know, make sure that they are resettled appropriately. I mean, the government has had various reasons for not increasing the quota for the three years that I've been doing this. And that's a new one that they think will play well with the public. But I think my press release in response to it was they're pretending to be prudent, but really they, they simply don't want to take more refugees. Um, they're quite happy to spend $20 billion on defence over the next 10 years. They're quite happy to talk about tax cuts at the next election. Um, so there is financial resources. Uh, the Red Cross says they've got enough volunteers to do it. Um, it's just a lack of will. They don't think that will help them get elected. Um, to me, it's pure politics along those lines. There's, there's nothing to do with prudence about it. it. Another thing that people probably that people probably have in mind when they think about bringing refugees into New Zealand is this discussion about housing and this crisis and this um, issue of homelessness where uh, we're already struggling to house people in New Zealand who need homes mm. and need social services. Do you think there's a bit of a, there's a bit of a feeling that we need to take care of New Zealanders first? Sure. Yeah, there's a whole party called New Zealand First that, that is very good on that line. 
Um, I mean, the fact of it is there are particular areas in New Zealand, like Auckland, specifically Auckland, um, that does have a huge problem with homelessness. And I mean, if, if I felt like not taking refugees would mean the government would, um, would actually spend money on the homeless, um, I, that would be fantastic. But really, that's not what they're planning on doing. They're planning on not helping either. The wonderful thing with the refugee quota is we get to choose where people go to. So for the last few years, the government been, has been moving away from areas with a lack of state housing. Um, the lack of state housing, by the way, is mostly in one- and two-bedroom houses. That's where most people are seeking houses, and those houses don't exist. But 95% of refugees come in as a family of four people. Like That's been the focus under this government. Mm. And so you see in other places like Mosgiel and uh, Invercargill and Tauranga, the government is selling off state houses because they can't fill them and they can't get people to live in them. So if the government was ambitious and wanted to help people, they could match the infrastructure capabilities that we have in places like Invercargill and Mosgiel and Tauranga with refugees coming in. That's the wonderful thing about the quota. We get to choose where people go to. They don't just come in and, like regular immigrants, they don't choose where to go. We set up communities. And it's, it's really brilliant. And if someone in the government actually cared about this issue, I think Michael Woodhouse, the immigration minister, does a little bit, but he doesn't have the push in government. To, to do something about it, and no one in the higher levels cares enough to actually be ambitious, to look at the infrastructure capacity we have in some of these smaller places. I mean, in the past, New Zealand resettled refugees in all sorts of places, and it worked really well because some of those small communities, not just having the capacity in housing, but in terms of schools, it helps keep some schools open in some of these areas. So we see a lot of smaller places really actually pushing to have refugees settled there because... For them, it means that this capacity that's not being used will be used. It's sort of a, it's a win-win. But yeah. Do you think that refugees who get resettled in New Zealand have a generally good experience? Um, I think they're coming from a place. Um, so my my perspective on on refugees comes from my friends. I lived in Syria for a little while before the war, and I have Afghan friends who are living in Iran. So my perspective of refugees is a lot of it is based on people before they come to here and their lives are hell before they get here, um, particularly for the most vulnerable people who we take. So New Zealand takes refugees who are least likely to survive a prolonged displacement. So I, I couldn't imagine it, describing it as a good life myself, having to flee going through war. It's certainly a better life than they would be afforded in refugee camps. Um, but it's also a, a real struggle. Like, I couldn't imagine, like, if the roles were reversed and I had to go and live in Syria and had really basic funding and just a bit of a house and had to live like a Syrian um, without my community around, it's really tough. I mean, the kids do fantastic, and uh, about 50% of refugees in this last year were under 18, and so the kids, I think they have great lives, but for the people of working age who don't go through the schooling system, I think it's tough. But it's it's better than, generally better, than what they they had ahead of them elsewhere. Yeah, it's really difficult. Um, yeah. Regardless, but I mean, that's what's so powerful about people leaving their homes in the first place is they really are making a a big decision to try to do what's best for their families. Yeah, and I think it's a beautiful thing that you know Winston Peters goes on and he's like, oh look, this refugee went back to their like an Iraqi guy went back to fight against ISIS. And he was saying, oh, we, shouldn't give, we should take away his New Zealand citizenship because it's safe enough for him to go back. 
My perspective is that it's a beautiful gift to give them citizenship, and they can have the choice themselves. If people think it's safe enough to go back, or if it's dangerous to go back, but they still want to reconnect to their own culture, I mean, what a gift to allow people the freedom of movement when before they were basically stateless. I think, that, you know, isn't that nice? Isn't that a beautiful thing to exist in the world? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Now, uh, you talked about this um, selection being about people who are least likely to survive when they're displaced. How does someone demonstrate that? So there are some particular categories. So we have this focus on families, but we also have a woman at risk category. So about uh, um, 150 of the 750 people in the last year were women at risk. So that's usually solo mothers or women whose husbands have been um, have been killed or aren't there. Um, I haven't been involved in the selection process myself, but my understanding is that the UNHCR, when they look at people, they look at um, whether they're particularly vulnerable along. Um, I mean, there's also sort of medical and disabled categories, but New Zealand doesn't do as well as it used to on that. Um, yeah. So is it... Is it generally hard to be selected to be a refugee? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, to go through the quota, it's really hard. And that's why people take it on themselves and get on these rickety boats to try and um, become asylum seekers. Every year, only about 1% of registered refugees goes out through the quota. So if you can imagine, people talk of there being a queue for refugees. Sign up with the UNHCR, get your place in the queue. Well, to go through that queue using the current quota uh, numbers that countries take, it would take 194 years to get to the end of the queue. So there's no functional queue for refugees. So most people will stay in the countries, you know, from Syria, they'll stay in Jordan, Turkey, Lebanon, until Syria's safe enough, and then they'll return. Or maybe they'll some way, somehow integrate themselves into those countries, even though they don't have the rights to work, or the kids don't have the rights to go to school. Like if you look at Iran, there's a huge Afghan population still there, sort of on this sidelines of illegality can't really go to school government's sort of trying to arrest you and deport you if they catch you all sorts of terrible human trafficking going on as well yeah that's a very difficult situation i can only imagine really yeah. i mean i have friends in these situations yeah and tell, 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 tell us about that tell us about sort of what has inspired you to be so passionate about this issue and one of one of the first people I met was an Afghan man who had... He's an Afghan man, right? But he wasn't born there. He was born in Iran. So his parents were first-generation refugees in Iran. It's kind of a beautiful Romeo and Juliet-style story because one is Baluchi, which is this uh, people from the south of Afghanistan, and his mother was Uzbeki from the north, and they got together and their family didn't really like this, um, and so they ran off together and they were in Iran um, and he was born in Iran, but because Iran hasn't signed up to the international laws that we have, he's not allowed to be a citizen of there, and so not really allowed to go to school, so kind of gets homeschooled. Um, but a friend of mine was running a hotel and gave him a job, and he learned English and was such a sweet guy. Um, but because he was working in this uh, hotel and speaking English with tourists, the military police started harassing him and trying to get him to inform on foreigners and inform on other people who spoke English. So he paid people smugglers. He got a loan from some people, and he's, his dad saved some money um, to get smuggled out, and he went to Austria um, eventually uh, through Turkey. And I, he has been accepted there now, 
as a refugee, but for a long time they weren't accepting Afghan people. They just said, oh, we've got too many people making claims. Afghanistan's kind of safe at the moment. You could go home, even though he had never lived there before. Um, so I've been in touch with him a lot, and he, he's doing well. But, I mean, he he's not a devout Muslim. He's not super devout, but he is Muslim. He's talked a lot about how him and some of his the other people in the detention center in Austria would have killed themselves if they didn't have this belief that that would send them to hell. Um, so you get this re- these really intense stories that are so disassociated from my life. So he's still in Austria now? Yeah. And he's in a detention center. He's not living in free society. He was in a very low-level security, not a detention center so much as like an asylum-seeker camp um, in a little town, but he's out of that now. temporary housing, not like what we think of when we think of Australian detention centers. No, although he was required to stay there, and he was able to go to to study a little bit there. It's a bit of a shame because the guy's got great English, and I... Even before the campaign started, I tried to talk to Immigration New Zealand about what it would mean to sponsor him and to bring him here. But there's no possibility for that. Um, I wasn't able to. They said, oh, no, the refugee quota has to go through the UN. And as an immigrant, well, he's Afghan. He doesn't really have the right papers. We can't really take Afghan people in, even if you're prepared to vouch for him. Hmm. Um, Maybe the campaign would have gone a lot differently if all my time and energy had been spent helping this guy come over. And I get emails all the time from people who have met Syrians overseas and Afghan people. They want to help them come here, but it's impossible. The government doesn't set it up to allow citizens to help other non-citizens. Now, uh, you've been to Syria as well? Yeah, I lived in Aleppo for about three and a half months in the north of Syria in 2009 and 10. Um, My friend's there, so I did a little bit of teaching in an English school. So two of them, two really lovely guys, um, one of them escaped Syria to get out of mandatory military work. Mm. Um, He was kind of a sensitive soul, had kind of long curly hair, um, kind of thought of himself as a bit of a Casanova. Um, So he was my flatmate in Aleppo, really nice guy, really sweet. He's teaching in uh, Washington State in Seattle at the moment, and another friend is teaching in California. Um, so all the people I knew, they spoke kind of good English and they were middle class people, so they can take care of themselves and they, they're mostly the ones who got to Europe. Another guy's in Hungary at the moment, which isn't a great place to be Syrian, but he's doing a master's there and I think he'll be okay. But it's through these guys that I hear the stories of their families and people who, you know, if you're a young guy or if you're young people like us, you kind of take care of yourself, um, and you can get out, but it's the people with families where they need to be working and they can't just have small part-time jobs to get enough to live on the edges of society. They're the ones really doing it tough. So one of the guy's brothers was a, a physicist, um, but had to feed the wife and kids. So they they were in uh, Dubai for a little while, but their visa ran out there, ended up going back to Syria and then to Turkey, and now the guy's working in a hummus factory in southern Turkey. And this is like a guy with a PhD in physics, Wow! and his job is to... You know, when you're making hummus, you can either take the um, off the chickpea, you can take the skin off it or not take it off. That's his job. You know, <laughs> <laughs> It's crazy. You know, a guy that would be such, such an asset to a country like this, but it, there's just no way to move people around. And it's also um, just really a testament to how, how people are required to change their lives to sort of protect their families from that conflict. That Syrian yeah. conflict just, just goes on and on, and it's really tragic. 
Yeah, I mean, you look, well, it's tough, eh, because I kind of think, oh, well, when Syria's done... Well, if you look at Afghanistan, they used to have the most refugees coming from there. Um, and for a while, from about 2004 and five onwards, the International Organization on Migration was trying to push people back into Afghanistan from Iran and from Pakistan. They would give them 50 bucks and put them on a bus back to Kabul. But the place isn't safe still. I mean, it's been 36 years now for the Afghan people of, of chaos in their country and displacement. So, gee, I, I really hope Syria can find some form of peace. Yeah, me too. Mm. Me too. And yeah. how, how about the refugees that live in New Zealand? You've met some of them. Yeah, I, I have a bit to do with them. I tried to make the campaign as much as I could about policy and it's really tough knowing who should speak on an issue like this. I, th I feel like New Zealand citizens have a role, have a really important role to stand up and say, we want to do more, we should be doing our fair share. But at the same time, we need those refugee voices to be out front. So groups like Changemakers are fantastic. Um, they're a local organisation that um, brings together the, the 12 refugee societies in Wellington and helps them speak with a single coherent voice. Um, so I've, worked, I've been talking to them since the very start of the campaign. Um, and, yeah, some of my friends now. Actually, some, some of my friends from before, they were like, oh, you do know I'm from a refugee background. You know, my parents fled Cambodia um, in 1981, and I came here in her belly when she was pregnant. That was actually a great story he told me. So back then, uh, just after the Vietnam War, the government did care about refugees then, and so to take as many people as they could, uh, they focused on pregnant women. And so now we take a lot of kids who are here and they count for one person within the quota. So we take about 200 families. But there they would take two adults with uh, the woman pregnant. And so it would be kind of the way to save three people or to bring three people out of those conflict zones. Wow. Yeah, I was reading that um, New Zealand in the 1970s took 10,000 refugees out of Southeast Asia f from Vietnam and Cambodia and those conflicts. Yeah, and our population was less than 3 million at that point. Yeah. Um, it was a different country then. Yeah, different. That's the New Zealand that I grew up in. It was a different yeah. country. It was, but you know, we've got a lot more money now. I think we could be, you know, if we just get pace. I, th I think we've still got. I think that heart's still there. Um, yeah, I don't mm -hmm. think it's a lot's changed. We're, we're a lot richer as well. I mean, this is one of our arguments. Our population is up forty percent uh, since nineteen eighty-seven, but the GDP per capita is more than doubled. So we've got way more money. And we need it's a government. That, like, there's no excuses. Yeah. There's no. There's no. And it's the same for homelessness as well. Mm, like, exactly. It, it's for all the it's social services. Thing, yeah. Yeah. So it's, to try and play off refugees against mm. poor people, it's like shit. The, I mean, mm. that's not it. You know, it, it's a class issue. It's, it's the rich so, getting richer. That's what to me is so disappointing about both both of those issues, homelessness and refugees, is that there's no. To me, there's no legitimate argument against it. Uh, yeah, why yeah. it can't be dealt with, but we find reasons. <laughs> we find reasons to to find. We find reasons to, to justify the positions yeah, yeah. we already exactly. have, which yeah. is we don't want to take them. This that, is what the that, national that governments just continue really to do. Yeah, it's disappointing, and that's why we struggle on it. And this is why we continue making our arguments, and that's why the campaign's not going to finish with the government's small announcement. Well, you've given us a lot to think about, Murdoch. We're going to play the song now? Yes, tell us about the song that you've chosen. Um, so, this I is play a track it. by Yahafar Hassan, who was, you can kind of imagine pre Saddam Hussein days in Iraq. I mean, people, 
you will have kind of a, a notion of the liberal societies that a lot of these Muslim countries were before some of the Ba'athist and other dictators and, and wars took place. So this guy was a socialist folk singer-songwriter uh, from Baghdad in the 1970s. Uh, and he's got a song called Palestinian, um, which is just got this kick-ass guitar intro. It's like Jimi Hendrix did a lot for the world. Um, and I kind of just hear this, like, ah, oh, just driving beautiful beat at the start of this. Um, it's actually my cell phone um, ringtone at the moment. And sometimes I don't answer my phone because I want to hear the song again. All right, let's hear it. Thank you for coming on, Murdoch. Thanks for coming on, Murdoch. Oh, oh, oh. 